Welcome, and thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Matthews Podcast, a podcast highlighting commercial real estate news, topics, and trends from the top professionals in the industry. I'm your host, Matt Wallace, market leader of the Cleveland office for Matthews Real Estate Investment Services, where I'm tasked with supporting the expansion and development of Matthews and the brand into new markets. In this episode, we are joined by retail leasing expert and food restaurant connoisseur, Michael Packervan, the first vice president and national director of retail leasing at Matthews. Whether he's talking about restaurant operations, the evolution of restaurant culture, negotiating lease terms, or sharing his restaurant knowledge, Michael will be sure to draw your attention. If you're wondering where the industry is heading now that restaurants are coming out of the woods from the pandemic or looking to sharpen your knowledge, this episode is for you. Michael's here to share his uncensored insight and answer all your restaurant real estate questions. Please welcome to the podcast, Michael Packerman. Thanks for having me. Uh, excited to do this. And I think we'll have a good time. Great. Let's let's jump right in. First topic. Let's uh, let's start with kind of uh, just sharing your story. You know, where how did you get into retail leasing and, and real estate in general, and how did you end up uh, as the go-to guy for restaurants? Okay. Oh, wow. I go a lot of different directions with this one. Uh, I think it all started with me when I was six years old and I got my first Monopoly set. Um, but then fast forwarding a few years later, uh, I was a, was a junior in college and I was home for the weekend and I was at Shabbat dinner with, uh, with my family, you know, the, just the close immediate family, you know, 75, 80 of us. Uh, you know, you know, you know how Persians roll. So uh, I overheard my grandfather say uh, that grandma didn't want to buy his the, the the car after a three year lease, and she drove it like thirty five hundred miles, and and it was it was a deal. And we we're supposed so I say, hey, grandpa, can I buy the car? And he said, do you have any money? And I kind of shrugged my shoulders. No. He said, well, why don't you come work for me for the summer? Um, you can't be late. I'm not going to pay you. Uh, but I'll sell you the car at a discount if, if you uh, if you work your butt off. And and it was an amazing experience. It was a real estate investment company. And so you want uh, you wanted a car. And I wanted a car. Yes. You took whatever job got you that car. What kind of car was it? So it was, it was, a, it was a GS 300 Lexus. It was, a, it was the first edition with the bubble lights, if you remember that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it it was it was a badass car. I mean, it, it, <laughs> driving around that in the in the in the streets of Santa Cruz, you know that that uh, that that put me on the map. And 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 how old were you? I was a senior in college, so it, it was um, between my junior year and and senior year of college. Uh, I didn't have an internship or a job lined up, and I think my grandpa realized that and and thought this would be a good opportunity to kind of get me working and. Uh, and it was great. At that time, they acquired a shopping center at the corner of uh, Van Nuys and Sherman Way in Van Nuys. Uh, tough neighborhood, lots of riffraff, and it was, it was kind of slowly gentrifying. And uh, my role as an intern was to come up with uh, different tenant types that we wanted to pursue and put lists of tenants that we wanted to kind of cold call. Um, and here I am 20 years later doing the exact same thing. That's with a great. different car <laughs> nicer i hope <laughs> i've got the i've got the tesla self-drive uh the tesla with the self-drive and, and i mean it is a game changer you know oh, it, it, being able to to work or, or take a nap or 
you know, eat it in and out, double double while going. I don't, from, I don't think you you're know, supposed to tell people that you're sleeping while driving. <laughs> but we'll, we, we'll we'll say we'll save the car talk for another one. I think there's a separate podcast for that. So <laughs> so let's go into a little bit of the detail of, of retail leasing and and what what does your day to day look like and and what type of tenants are you talking to? What what is your actual role in getting them up and running in the shopping centers? Uh, sure. So so maybe take a step back. So retail leasing agent, uh, it's kind of two categories. You've got landlord representation, you've got uh, tenant representation, some agents, you know, specialize in one and, and some do both. Um, I started my career really on the landlord side. Um, and about eight, nine years ago, uh, Natalie Pebbles with Jersey Mike's decided it, it'd be a, a, a good idea to hire a landlord rep it for the San Fernando Valley because she had such a hard time finding spaces and hiring somebody on the landlord side maybe had more connections with landlords and it, it was a it was a terrible idea um, but it, it actually it actually worked and that was the that's kind of the beginning of my tenant rep career and I'm about split 50 50 at this point um, on the landlord side our job is it, it is to procure synergistic tenants, uh, value-adding tenants to a shopping center or a mall or whatever the retail property is uh, on behalf of the landlord and, and negotiating lease terms on the landlord's behalf. On the uh, and, and really, the, the understanding the, the property, the neighborhood, and more importantly, your, your client's goals uh, that those are the key elements to really executing on the assignment on behalf of a landlord. On the tenant side, it could be identifying markets, it could be identifying sites, uh, obviously negotiating lease terms on, on the tenant's behalf. The key to tenant rep for me has always been really understanding a tenant's DNA, right? Understanding how do they think, what motivates them, who's their demographic, um, what's the perfect space size, um, you know, in case of a restaurant, how much back of house, front of house, how much patio do you need? Can you, could you live within line or do you need to be on an end cap? Really understanding that, understanding um, the, the, the neighborhoods that, that, that excite them and, and motivate them and the types of properties and the synergistic tenants that they want to be around. So really understanding the D DNA of, of your tenant is critical that's uh, i mean it, it's amazing the the amount of thought and research and um, nuance that, that goes into to finding the the right match for for a landlord and for a tenant um now now you you've been in this game for for quite a while now um we've seen your your fair share of of trends and and ups and downs and you know where where was the leasing and particularly restaurant industry before COVID, uh, how did COVID affect it? And how are, what are the trends looking like now that we're beginning to emerge from this kind of pandemic era? Yeah, so, so, so interesting with COVID, I, I, I don't think COVID necessarily created any new trends. I think COVID expedited a lot of the trends that we were already seeing in the marketplace. If you look at restaurants, for example, uh, third-party delivery with Postmates and Uber Eats, that was all trending prior to COVID, uh, but COVID was really what pushed 
the consumer to uh, almost force them to use these use these apps and and you know you you couldn't go to restaurants for a while you couldn't dine in so uh, this so COVID really allowed them to uh, really push this other platform and, and increase revenue and sales through third party. Uh, if you think about patios, tenants always have always, especially Southern California, you get 360 days of of uh, of of sunlight a year. Um, so patios were always in demand, but now the 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 evolution of the patio and and you get virtual patios now. Is it, what does that mean? Well, what, what is a virtual what is a virtual patio? I'm sorry, I, I've never heard that term. It's interesting. I was on a tour with the tenant and, and the, the broker representing the property said, you know, uh, we said, is there a patio opportunity? He said, well, we could do virtual patios. And I said, can we pay virtual rent on the virtual patio? <laughs> uh, but I, I guess that I guess the idea of like recessing a storefront, um, having kind of a, a you know, a, a, a storefront that opens up, whether a garage door or, um, you know, nano walls that, that completely open. So creating uh, almost the, the feeling that you are outdoors, but you're under a covered, uh, covered space. So, um, you know, th those things were all happening before COVID, but COVID really just um, pushed them to the forefront. So I, I guess when we're talking restaurants, it's, you know, probably too, even too broad a category. You know, there's uh, certainly a, a number of kind of subsets of the, the broader restaurant, which, which, uh, sectors in restaurants were most affected by COVID and which ones were able to kind of navigate the storm uh, the best? Yeah, so if you want to look at restaurants in a few different categories, you've got obviously drive-throughs and, and um, drive-throughs were, uh, again, doing incredibly well before the pandemic. And, and uh, I guess they were one of the few that, that really weren't touched at any point through the pandemic, being able to um, serve food out of a drive-through was 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 very helpful uh, when we had our shutdown. Uh, then you look at kind of the QSR world. Let's say a, a Jersey Mike's, for example. Uh, Jersey wasn't affected. Uh, it, in in a lot of cases, as those shutdowns would occur, their sales would actually increase because uh, people were were. Uh, not able to go to full service, sit down and, and uh, you know, the, the whole cooking thing that lasted like two and a half weeks, right? Um, people flooded <laughs> to the grocery stores and bought all these, oh, we're going to start cooking and save money and this could be a good thing and we're going to eat healthy and, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I, I learned to bake bread. I, I, I baked one loaf of bread. What, what, okay, what, what did you go with <laughs> Uh, it, it, it didn't, it didn't work out. So. <laughs> I don't even want to say, but so, so, so as we kind of emerge then, so how are the actual real estate strategies kind of impacting spaces and, and square footage and the, the actual construction of these sites? Uh, sure. So, uh, one, one category we didn't talk about was full service, uh, you know, full service sit down restaurants. If you if you think about them, they were able to incorporate uh, a lot of takeout and delivery business during the shutdown. Um, kind of forced them to shift their models and and find ways to to make sales. 
and and a big part of that was third party delivery and takeout. Uh, and if you think about it from a from a labor standpoint, they're they're saving quite a bit selling the same product, uh, you know, in a in a uh, to go container as opposed to having a server and a and a buser and a food runner. And and so they're saving quite a bit on on labor selling that same product for the same price and in some cases even higher. Right. We saw quite a few upticks in pricing with restaurants during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, it, also patios, patios added uh, seats to uh, to restaurants and those patios are now for the most part are still there. So restaurants have increased their seating capacity. Uh, and have been able to keep that seat, seating capacity and, and now have takeout and and third party. And so um, sales are sales are up. Sales are up for everyone. I, I don't know about you, but getting a restaurant reservation, a decent restaurant in Los Angeles right now, it, minimum three weeks if you can even get a res. Yeah, I mean that that great for great for restaurant tours, but but bad for the consumer, I guess. But uh, shifting over to the consumer, uh, nice entree there. Uh, what um, what have you seen in kind of shift in preferences? We've talked about landlords and we've talked about tenants. What what does the consumer uh, want, and what are, what are they, where are their preferences going over the next couple of years? And um, kind of ex explain where you're seeing those trends. Sure. So I think from a consumer standpoint, uh, we'll we'll break this down into two categories. Uh, one category, kind of drive-through and fast casual and 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 QSR. Uh, consumers want things uh, in 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 an expedited manner. Whether that's uh, showing up to a restaurant and being able to have a mobile order where that that uh, that meal is is prepared. You walk in. You don't need to pay. You can you say your name. They hand it to you. You walk out, you, or you go through a drive-through, or whatever the case may be. Uh, efficiency is definitely on the on the top of the list for consumers. Uh, now you look at now you look at the fine dining and 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 full service. Uh, Authenticity, I think, is 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 what consumers want. Uh, consumers want to walk into a restaurant and be able to see the kitchen, to be able to see the food being prepared, uh, to be able to uh, read a menu and and see ingredients that may be foreign to them that are authentic to certain regions. Uh, authenticity and and food quality and the sourcing of that food. Uh, those are things that that really drive consumers uh, on the on the full service and 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 fine dining side. So so I sit in Cleveland and we get all the good restaurants from the West Coast about three years later. So what am I going to be eating in three years? What's popular out in L.A. right now? Oh, wow. OK. Uh, where do I start? What's coming to Cleveland? Okay, so what what should you be excited about in coming to Cleveland? How could we not talk about Nozawa and Jerry Greenberg and and what they're doing with Sugarfish and now Kazunori, Haiho, Wovo, and their newest their newest steakhouse Matu, uh, just doing incredible 
incredible things, the attention to detail and design, um, service, food sourcing, overall execution is, is just game changing. They're really pushing the bar in so many different ways. And, and I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of everything they do. Uh, there's a regional group um, in Orange County called Key Concepts, and they've got they've got five five different concepts, and and every one of them is is exciting. Uh, we have a local chef out here in Los Angeles, Jackson Kalb. Um, he's got two restaurants, Jamie Anoteca and Ospi, and and um, everything on his menu is is phenomenal. And uh, you know that he he grew up in in the Hillstone kitchens and you know understands service and 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 taking care of the customer in in, in, a, in a, a, a way that very few do these days i think that i think service in restaurants has gone downhill at least in southern california over the years um so to be able to go to uh go to a restaurant and and, and really have great service is 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 always appealing to me um Man, I could, I, I could, I could, you know, I feel like I could let you go on and on and just, you know, speak about all the new concepts and all the new people. I don't know any of those people that you just mentioned. <laughs> so uh, Jack, chef, Jack's but that's, actually that's on the top, Midwest chef, thing. top Chef Bravo, and and he was eliminated last week, and we we're all saddened by that. But um, he's just an incredible talent and rising star uh, in the food scene. Uh, how do we not talk about Dintai Funk? I mean. The, the the sales that they're doing are just mind-boggling. An international company um, put Taiwanese dumplings and noodles on the map for so many. Um, you walk in and you see, uh, you you know, you see people. They've got the 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 glass um, wall, and and you can see inside of the kitchen, and you see, you know, fifteen or twenty folks. Um, making these dumplings by hand and, and um, you know, we, we eat with our hands. We, we eat with our eyes, we eat with our hands too. Um, yeah. But we eat with our eyes these days, right? If you think about social media uh, and, and the Food Network, really, Food Network started it, right? Um, and then social media, and you see these, these food and, and, and culture icons, Anthony Bourdain, how do we not talk about his influence in, uh, in, in food and culture? Um, you know, really taking things that were so foreign to us uh, and making them household household items, right? Uh, think I mean, about I can I can hear I, I mean I can hear the passion that you have just coming out. I mean, it's just it's incredible. Like when you when you're speaking with someone that just you know is such an expert in a in a field, like it's it's always so refreshing to just feel that passion coming through. So. What is it about restaurants that that gives you that passion that is so captivating for you personally? Uh, so I, I think more than restaurants, just 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 the the dining experience, the food experience. Uh, being Persian Jewish, uh, every Friday night it was Shabbat dinner for us, and the aunts and the uncles and the grandparents and everybody would come together and and we we would sit around a large table and and uh, and grandma would prepare food you know slaving in the kitchen for uh, a day or two and and um, you know force everybody to eat and you know you say you're done and she puts more on your plate and and that forced our family to 
come together and connect and conversate and and have a connection through the vessel of, of a meal, right? Um, and and you look at it today for me, if I haven't seen a friend for a long time, if 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 uh, my wife and I, we've got two little ones at home and, and we wanna kind of get away for a couple hours and, and connect, we typically do that at a restaurant. We typically go and sit and 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 uh, and connect. And that meal and that table uh, almost physically forces you to be able to do that. Um, so food has just always been a, a part of our uh, uh, of my world and 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 culture. You think about uh, Koreans and Mexicans, and Italians. It's it's no different, right? The the food has always been that kind of focal point of that culture that brought people together, brought them, you know, talking about um, uh, family issues or politics or sports or whatever it may be. Uh, did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, that that personal connection, uh, even more so post pandemic, where people were just craving that 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 sense of touch with their their loved ones in the community, it, it's um, it explains a lot of the rebound. Um, that was that was the the hardest part of the pandemic, which is that loss of connection and food. Food is such a major part of that. So, um, so again, if you think about it, that loss of connection was actually happening before COVID, right? Social media, uh, uh, the the world of you know uh, sitting in front of of your phone for hours at, at a time and and connecting with people through social media and texting, well, that, that's not real connection, right? So um, we were craving connection prior to COVID. I think COVID kind of forced us to think about connection. Uh, and and again, another 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 trend that we saw kind of happening prior to COVID that, that kind of opened our eyes or, or expedited that feeling of that loss of connection. Um, and I think that's why restaurants are, are doing so well and so popular right now is, is we, we've, we've lost our connection and, and food is a way for us to, to connect now. Um, and, you know, I, I, I gotta go back to kind of food network and social media and, and, and thinking about that, the influence that that's had, Things that were foreign, you know, think about this, things that were foreign to us in terms of food through the Food Network and social media and Anthony Bourdain are no longer foreign, right? And that was the, that's always been the thing that, that people were, there was a fear of trying something new, right? But when you see your friends eating it, when you see it on TV being prepared, when you go on Yelp and you see it has you know, 4,200 reviews at 4.7 stars, that unfamiliarity, that that foreignness of that type of food or that meal slowly goes away. And that the, the, the barriers that were there typically um, that would prevent you from going to a dim sum house and eating chicken feet, right? Um, or now, you know, you, you see your hero, uh, eat it at a restaurant, you know, and it's, or you see your friends eating it, or you walk into a restaurant now and you have a 200 people sitting around, it, it, it makes it comfortable. Um, so, 
you know, you think about Shaolin Bao. What is Sha what is Shaolin Bao, right? Uh, that uh, Taiwanese uh, soup dumplings, where the soup is actually inside of the dumpling. Uh, Din Tai Fung is selling millions and millions and millions of dollars of Shaolin Bao in the United States. Uh, you look at things like uh, pho and ramen and pupusas and uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. These are things that uh, a lot of millennials and, and through social media and food network, we know what these things are. And, and yeah, when was the last time you heard somebody say, oh, man, I'm really craving a, a bowl of spaghetti and meatballs, right? <laughs> I don't hear that anymore. My kids, right? my, my four-year-old, so that's about it. <laughs> But, but, it, but, but, you know, in, in my house, uh, Sunday night, which is like, you know, that that's, you know, maybe we had a few cocktails on Saturday and we had a weekend and then we finally put the kids down. And it's like, okay, we want something comforting for us. That's either ramen or pho. That, yeah. That's the, that's the debate my wife and I have on Sunday night. Uh, so yeah, it, it's really exciting to see how, and, uh, you know, living in Los Angeles, you go 20 miles in any direction and you've got Koreatown or Little Armenia or um, Chinatown or, you know, Terangelis, right? And and you really have authenticity of flavors because it's because, you know, Southern California has so many immigrants from these countries and, and those recipes have been passed down and, and brought to the States now. Uh, so it's it's a it, it's an incredible place to live and to be able to really experience authenticity of food in, in, in one week with 14 different you know if you have lunch and dinner every day out you can literally have 14 different authentic meals uh, driving no more than 20 minutes. That's it's incredible the culture that has has evolved around food. Uh, as as we wrap this up, I want to bring it back kind of full circle to your to your brokerage career and specifically that that within retail. Um, you know how does how does retail kind of where does retail go from here? What what is retail now? I mean, how are we seeing what the, the concept of retail changing over the the course of your career? What is retail? That is a great question. Um, I'll answer that in two ways. I'll give you the Webster's definition. Okay. <laughs> so uh, Webster's definition, here you go. Uh, the sale of goods to the public in relatively small quantities for use of consumption rather than resale. That sounds okay. nothing like my definition of retail. is that what you do for a living <laughs> so so what is your definition of retail that's what matters that's what the people want to hear so uh it, it's really no longer about the sale of goods if you think about it right e-commerce e-commerce changed that because you could buy those things online services even i mean uh look there's a new app where you could order a massage and and the masseuse comes to your door and and, and um, pulls the table out and puts the music on and you get a massage. So why do you need to go to Massage Envy? Why do you need to go to the Now Massage? Um, why do you need to go to a, 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 a restaurant? Why do you need to go uh, to to buy groceries, right? 
it's really about experience. Retail has become selling an experience as much as selling a good or service. Uh, if you think about landlords, landlords, their job is to create an experience in their shopping centers or malls or projects uh, that drive people out of their house, whether that's um, the tenants they bring to their projects or the common areas that they create. Uh, if you look at Caruso and what he does with all of his, there's always this huge grass area um, where in his projects where, pe where people can come. I've got my two kids and uh, Saturdays and Sundays, like where do I take the kids? Where, how do I get them out of the house, right? So um, we, we go to the Palisades and, and we go to a restaurant and we walk around and we buy an ice cream and we put let the kids and the dog run around the grass and 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 be outside and be in the sun and get their energy out um, and that that fills a good three four hours for us in some cases so uh, whether it's a landlord or a tenant you know tenants have been forced to figure out what is the experience that i can create for a consumer that they can't get online right uh and it's very challenging for you know for for restaurants obviously um that's a little bit easier but for for soft goods right for for uh for uh the service industry right you walk into the now massage they're they're one of our new clients and it's tulum vibes from the start right you walk in and you smell and you hear the sounds of the ocean and and Right there, that experience is is, is going to be significantly different than um, ordering a massage on an app, right? Um, yeah. So, so I, I think retail has transformed to really selling an experience as much as selling uh, goods or services. And in, and and it's on these tenants, uh, on these retailers, just to to be creative and and you know connect with their consumer their consumers on that level that. That they want to that they want to be on. So that's a uh, um, very incredible insight there. Um, in terms of brokerage and kind of how your day to day has changed, um, how has data impacted, technology impacted? Um, what what are the shifts in your career, uh, and and what do you see coming down the pipe um, for the future? Yeah, great, great question. So data, data is uh, is so available to us, whether it's demographics or or even sales volumes, right? Uh, it, it, there's transparency in the industry that we've never seen before at this level, um, and it, it it helps landlords and it, it definitely helps tenants and and helps brokers. Uh, that that's for sure. Being able to go to a client. Uh, you know, let's say, you know, uh, out touring with Silver Lake Ramen and be able to tell them that this Mendocino Farms does X, Y, Z in sales or to say that uh, based on on cell phone data that we obtained, uh, we know that this is the uh, this is the island's restaurant that has the most traffic on the weekends as compared to any other island's restaurant. That is really powerful information to be able to share with, with the client. 
Uh, so, to, so how did you guys do this in the past? I mean, if you if you never had you know cell phone data and sales tracking firms and things like that, when you started out, what were you doing? So you, you wanted. I think you started this by saying the the uncensored. Uh, so so I, I, I I'm going to share my 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 secrets here. So um, <laughs> let's get into it. When we first started working with Jersey Mike's, we would walk into a subway um, first thing in the morning, right when they opened. We would buy a water, we'd look at the receipt, uh, and there would be a um, there'd be a, a sales number on there. Uh, we would go back at the end of the day, right before they close, buy a bag of chips, and based on what that sales number was, we could calculate how many sales that subway did in one day. Uh, you 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 apply you know average sale to that number and and there's your daily sale. Huh. That that's brilliant and that that's creative. Uh, you could also count employees, right? Um, I, I I still do this to this day. I walk into a uh, I walk into a Chipotle. I, I count how many employees are working at lunch. That'll that'll tell you if it's a if it's a decent store or a good store or or a great store. Uh, you can get a sense, right? If the store is struggling or if the store is not doing as well, they're going to try to limit their labor costs and and you'll see kind of less employees working. So uh, just cert, cert, certain little things that now, now you walk into restaurants and you see how many uh, Postmates orders they have up, right? Yeah. Uh, how many, yeah, how many brown bags are sitting on the counter? That That'll tell you the story. So, Michael, with, with uh, the emergence of all these new tools for for data collection, how is that impacting decision making from from landlords and tenants? Sure. So, uh, I think there's two things happening. One is that landlords and lenders are becoming a lot more comfortable with regional or or mom and pop type tenants because they're able to see the volumes and get comfortable with the operators through that transparency. Uh, and the, the the other side of it is consumers are tired of these chains, right? The consumers are tired of the Black Anguses and the Bojangles. Uh, no offense to them, but they want they want farm to table. They want authenticity of of culture and flavors. They, they, and, and Hillstone really, Hillstone nails this. I mean, you walk into any Hillstone restaurant, you don't feel like it's a chain in any way, shape, or form. Uh, so the, 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 the evolution of kind of that regional um, restaurant uh, and, and not being a chain is, is, is driven, I think, in two parts by the, the 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 needs the wants of the consumer but then also comfortability uh with uh, of landlords and lenders with these types of tenants so that so so that's great so the data is actually you know allowing for more opportunity for some of the the small businesses to really get a get a toehold and start to thrive data and then if you think about uh social media uh their ability to market their space now to the masses at a fairly reasonable cost uh, that's a that's a big deal right uh, and and 
it's great to see because there has been this kind of slow death of of mom and pops in in our in our world and and it's sad because the mom and pops are really where you have those that 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 real culture and, and the recipes that have been passed down and passed down and authenticity of culture and flavors um, and that was slowly going away and and through this kind of evolution of of the of the mom and pop and through social media and through transparency of data um, it's it's given a lot of them new new life and new hope that's incredible. This has been a fascinating discussion, and I'm sure we could keep running, but uh, we, we are uh, running out of time here. So, uh, Michael Packervan, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights. Uh, we certainly appreciate your time today. I know you're very busy. Uh, so, everyone, uh, take care and uh, be sure to tune in next time. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. for having me.